do better. Welcome to Do Better Podcast, a digital content hub from Asade, built for minds interested in doing better. Knowledge ideas, perspectives, and research insights on topics that matter. Business advice for better decisions and growth. Latest on the world of innovation and ideas. A look inside a global world beyond borders and an open view on social challenges. You can leave your comments and suggestions on dobetter.isade.edu. Chesbro is the father of uh, open innovation. Is uh, a professor in Berkeley in the Haas Business School, and as you know, open innovation in the last ten years has been the, the dominant way to manage innovation everywhere in the world. It has a profound impact in how we understand innovation, and not only innovation management in companies, but also in innovation policy. In, Places, of course, in governments and so on, but in places like cities and like the public sector too. So thank you very much for being in this podcast. Oh, it's it's a pleasure. We want to talk about your new book. You have a new book that is Open Innovation Resource, Just Appear. The first thing that you, uh, uh, that you discuss in the book is the exponential paradox. Uh, tell us, what is the exponential paradox? What do you mean by this? The exponential paradox is uh, combining two empirical facts that are seemingly contradictory. On the one hand, technological advance continues to progress uh, in many ways at an accelerating rate. On the other hand, uh, economic productivity growth and wages are slowing down and stagnant. So if Technology is advancing faster. This should be creating abundance. But if we look at the larger society and measures of economic productivity or economic wages, we see no evidence of that abundance. And that is the paradox. In the 40s, we had a lot of innovation and we didn't have this paradox. Why do you think these things are happening now more than it happened before or happening now in a different way than it happened before? I like the way you asked this question because this is something I also do in the book is after describing the paradox, I actually ask the question that you raised. If we go back in time, there was a period from the end of the Second World War through the 1970s where economic productivity was growing quite nicely and wages were increasing quite nicely. And so was there something that we used to do that maybe we've stopped doing that might explain part of this paradox? And so just to remind the audience of what was going on at that time, at the end of the Second World War, uh, in the United States, there was something called the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, which is more popularly known as the GI Bill. And this provided funding from the government for millions of returning troops to go to college. And in the society, this was a revolutionary act. Uh, and the percentage of the population that went to university doubled as a result of this intervention. And it tremendously increased the absorptive capacity of the labor force and the capability of workers to master new skills and new knowledge. And this was one of the things that really helped productivity growth 
and wage growth. So it was good for businesses. It was good for workers. It was good for the economy. Something similar happened in the 1950s. We had the national highway system where we built out an incredible network of roads across the country that greatly stimulated the construction industry, but also stimulated the automotive industry, retailing, tourism, a whole bunch of logistics, a whole bunch of industries were greatly expanded because of this investment. So again, it was good for business. It was good for workers. It was good for the society. Uh, in the 1960s, we had the Apollo program. We had massive increases in government support for universities and education. All of these things, good for business, good for workers, good for wages, good for society. So there was a period where we were doing a great deal of infrastructure investment. And the main cause, I think, of the exponential paradox is that our innovation infrastructure is no longer keeping up. And if you look at Europe in the post-war period, we had the Marshall Plan that created a lot of funding for infrastructure in Europe. Uh, we even had programs that launched business schools in Europe like INSEAD in Fontainebleau in France, or IESE in Spain, that were direct outgrowths of the Marshall Plan. So there were a number of infrastructure investments going on in North America and in Europe that really contributed to the productivity improve, improvement in the economy. And in the last 35 years, we've just gotten away from making those investments. And I think this is the problem. Innovation is linked to growth and productivity. And growth and productivity are the holy grail, are what our societies look for because at the end it's the only way to improve the lives of everybody and to provide for all this welfare state that we dream of and so on. It seems that we didn't get them. Um, you mentioned three facets of innovation in your book. You mentioned that maybe we have put a lot of emphasis into discovering new ideas, into thinking new ways of doing things, and this, as important as it is, is not the whole story. Can you tell us, tell us about this? I mentioned the three parts, which are generation, dissemination, and absorption, and it's these three elements that comprise the innovation infrastructure. Uh, and a very good current example that you know a lot about would be artificial intelligence. There are a few companies already getting very good results from artificial intelligence, but the vast majority of companies haven't really put artificial intelligence to work at all yet. And the dissemination of artificial intelligence is quite limited right now, and the absorption even more so. We're beginning to see that uh, with AWS offering some AI tools, uh, we're beginning to see some improvements in this over time. But as you know very well, but your audience may not, you also need data to be in a form that can be analyzed and used to train your algorithms. And many companies don't have their data. So before we can really get value from artificial intelligence, It isn't only about understanding the machine learning technology itself. It's also about get developing and structuring the data in ways that it can be usefully analyzed and put to work. 
And this has led to a result that the OECD has talked about called the best versus the rest. And what's happened is that since the year 2000, there's been a growing gap between the performance of the best companies in an industry and the rest of those companies in the industry. And this gap is growing wider and wider. So the very best companies really are keeping pace with exponential technology. And in doing so, they're pulling away from everybody else. But when we get to averages across the whole society, it isn't just what the best are doing. It's what everybody is doing that will lead to productivity growth and wage growth. And for those reasons, I think we have these problems of dissemination and absorption. I remember in the old times that it was, uh, I think Robert Solo that was saying, uh, computers are everywhere, but in the statistics. Uh, but it seems that we repeat the same thing. You're right. There was a, a period in the 1990s where this was a very active topic of academic research and even in the larger society, part of the commentary. And people like Eric Brynolfsson of MIT studied it pretty carefully. And what he showed in his work was that companies that spent a lot of money on computers but did not change their underlying processes to take full advantage of the computers got very little benefit uh, from making those investments. The companies that were really benefiting from investing in computer technology were those companies that were actually developing new processes, new capabilities that were now enabled uh, by computers. And since then, of course, we've had the explosion of the Internet, uh, which has further uh, democratized access to many things. And there was a period where many of us thought this was going to create tremendous uh, productivity growth and wage growth for the whole society. Uh, but the Internet, for all of its power and capability, has unfortunately been captured by a few oligopolistic companies. And so for most people now, although the Internet is a great improvement in their lives in terms of communications, uh, it is not a democratizing force that is creating more access for more people to more things uh, and leveling the playing field. Instead, the rich are getting richer and, again, leaving the rest behind. Inequality is probably one of the biggest problems that we have. In all this process, uh, how is open innovation helping into getting beyond idea generation? What can be the contribution of open innovation? What has been the contribution of open innovation? Well, I want to talk first about inequality, and then I'll talk about open innovation. Fantastic. Uh, with inequality, we have authors like Piketty showing us the growing gap of inequality, not just in any one society, but across many societies. So this is not a specific problem to Spain or the United States. This is a very widespread problem. Uh, what Mariana Mazzucato reminds us is that the government has a very powerful, positive role to play in the creation of wealth, as well as the distribution of wealth. And so if we combine the two together, we think about a society that is creating wealth and opportunity for the broad uh, membership of society, and then by having it broadly disseminated and widely absorbed, you can reduce 
the inequality that results from adopting these new technologies. So that's the, the general thought. Uh, within open innovation, open innovation can allow organizations to tap into many more sources of knowledge. So you don't have to have your own big internal R&D laboratory to be a successful innovator. You can collaborate or access knowledge from many different places through a variety of mechanisms. And this essentially levels the playing field for many companies, so you don't have to be big to be innovative using open innovation. Now the pace is so fast. The level of new ideas, new achievements that are in the market is so, so fast. How can these companies keep up uh, with the rate of innovation and um, thrive in, in these markets? Many times these markets that are characterized by a winner-takes-all shape. Well, you're correct that uh, it's a challenge for large companies to move fast. Uh, and this, I think, is one of the areas that has really evolved since open innovation was first introduced. When open innovation was first introduced, the, the primary focus was on collaborating with universities, collaborating with partners and other large companies. Now, with uh, the much faster pace of technological advance, uh, we see much more open innovation around how to collaborate with startup companies, how to access crowds to uh, crowdsource solutions to important technical problems. These are mechanisms that can move faster. And so companies, if they adopt them, will get more knowledge sooner than they would likely be able to generate internally on their own. So this is, I think, uh, very promising. But one of the things that I say in chapter two of my book is that I think the financial crisis had uh, a big negative impact on how companies had their own innovation infrastructure in place. Because when the financial crisis came in 2007 and 2008, open innovation was still a very new idea. And it wasn't yet widely practiced and it wasn't well understood. I think many companies, particularly some of the large established companies we're talking about, many of these companies reacted to the financial crisis by cutting their innovation spending and did so in the name of open innovation. So they used open innovation to crowdsource and to downsize. And when the financial crisis finally ended and market growth resumed, many of these same companies lost their ability, uh, some of their ability to be as innovative as they would have been otherwise. And so ironically, I think open innovation has been uh, mispracticed in this way and has been used as a rationale for budget cutting, which is not what open innovation is about. You devote almost two chapters to corporate innovation, how to promote open innovation inside corporations and how to promote, in general, innovation in corporations. Can you tell us some of the ideas? So in chapter four and five, I try to update my own understanding of some of the current day practices in open innovation. Uh, we already mentioned crowdsourcing as one of these. Some of the new research has shown that it's very important and powerful to tap into the power of crowds, but you also have to pay close attention to your internal staff 
when you bring back these results, there's a wonderful piece of research by Hila Lifshitz Asaf, who studied crowdsourcing at NASA at the Johnson Space Control Center, and they had a very successful result for predicting solar flares. Uh, and they brought this improved algorithm from the crowd back to the Johnson Space Control Center. The internal staff there were demoralized by this result because the solution came from somebody who was a weather forecaster, who did not study astrophysics, did not study aeronautical engineering, did not have the same technical background and credentials of the people back in Houston, and yet this person's algorithm was the one that was going to be used, and he was getting the recognition and the glory. Uh, and it created what uh, Lifshitz Asaf calls an identity crisis within the technical staff back in Houston. And it reminds us that even with open innovation, making greater use of the external world, uh, you need to pay very close attention to your internal culture and organization if you're actually going to get results with open innovation. Another area that is around your book is policy. Innovation policy is becoming very important. Uh, very important because uh, we need to promote countries, need to promote uh, growth and need to promote productivity because it's the only way to survive. Uh, innovation policy uh, in many countries doesn't exist. Yes, you have research policy with universities and you have entrepreneurship policy, but uh, an industrial policy, but you don't have a kind of innovation policy. Innovation policy has changed very much and in many uh, countries still you have the understanding of the tip of helix that probably is already updated after all these digital changes in the digital world and so on. Can you tell us a few traits of uh, what could be an innovation policy in this era, in this age of open innovation, AI, cloud? Yes, um, and I actually do devote much of Chapter 3 to this question. Uh, and actually Europe, I would say, is, uh, has taken a leadership position in some of this uh, under the recently departed commissioner, Carlos Moidas, and his policy of the three opens, open science, open innovation, and open to the world. Uh, open science translates to open data sources. It also translates to open access to uh, publications and technical journals particularly when the research in those journals is being publicly funded. Uh, right now, in, in Europe and North America, the publishing companies have a business model that takes the publicly funded research, utilizes academic researchers to review that, and then publishes it, but only privately. Uh, and it's very expensive to get access to this. Sitting here in Berkeley right now, Berkeley has a, a big battle going on with one of the publishers over open access. And this has also been an issue in the EU, and Moidash's initiatives have not been successful in shifting the business models of these scientific publishers. So we have some work to do on the, uh, the open access part. But now in the area of AI and other technologies, it goes much further where you need to be able to have explainable AI. You need to be able to have data sets that have been tested and validated. You have privacy concerns where the GDPR and other regulations come into play. 
So all of these enable innovation if they're managed well. And if they're not managed well, they can actually interfere with the development uh, of innovation. And so this, I think, is going to be part of the agenda uh, in policy going forward. And I would note that when uh, Moidash was replaced, there was no one in the commission and the new the new team that has science in their portfolio. Uh, so this was one that sadly fell between the cracks. Uh, and with all the politicking and lobbying to get the various EU commission positions, uh, the research, science, and innovation portfolio that Moidash has has been chopped up. Now innovation is part of innovation and youth, for example. Uh, and there still is a research uh, policy, uh, but the science policy is actually, at the moment, uncovered. And this in Europe explains the, the European paradox that we still are pretty high in terms of discovery, research, invention, and so on, but in terms of producing actual results, actual innovations, we, we don't manage that well. We have been there for more than 60 or 70 years. Uh, uh, how do you think we should Europe go in this direction? You're correct about the European paradox. Uh, and I would add that in addition to having very strong research uh, and science, uh, Europe also has a wonderful lifestyle. And uh, people actually, uh, not they don't live to work. They actually work in order to live and to enjoy life. So I think Europe has many lessons to teach the rest of the world. Nonetheless, it, it is true that when it comes time to scale the innovations, especially the business models that are going to fuel these innovations, there does seem to be a gap. And I think part of it is uh, family-owned businesses uh, are maybe unable or unwilling to make big investments. Public capital markets, uh, I think, are also conservative. Venture capital markets exist in Europe, but they're not nearly as big uh, as they are in China or North America. Uh, so there, it's a complex set of factors uh, that are involved here. And I don't have a single answer for Europe, but it is true that uh, Europe has uh, work to do there, even as it has a lot to teach the rest of the world. Can you tell us something about China? We are all, always so interested and fascinated by the growth and the depth of things that are happening there. Yes, uh, I think, uh, and I think I'm typical of many, that up until the fall of 2017, I had assumed that China was going to follow the pattern that we saw with Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, uh, where as the economies became more and more prosperous and as the people in those countries became more and more wealthy, the authoritarian political culture was going to give way to a more pluralistic system, and the companies in turn were going to become more and more integrated into global markets and global innovation and supply chains. In the fall of 2017, Xi Jinping gave a three-hour address to the party congress that meets every five years in China, and he essentially put the world on notice that China wasn't going to be like that. 
Uh, instead, China was going to follow a policy of indigenous innovation and was going to balance the decisive role of the market with the leading role of the party, being the Communist Party. Uh, and finally, he also indicated that he did not name a successor for himself. Indeed, he elevated Xi Jinping thought to the level of the constitution of the country uh, above Deng Xiaoping himself. Uh, so he put himself on a level with Mao in this period in the fall of 2017. So China is clearly following its own path rather than uh, following the path of the other countries I mentioned. What this means for open innovation is that there is a tension in China that has to be managed. The tension between the market forces that will promote economic growth in China as elsewhere and the leading role of the party, particularly as it's expressed with through the state-owned enterprises uh, in the uh, society. And so I look at China in this chapter in three industries, uh, high-speed rail, semiconductors, and automotive. Uh, and I find that this tension between the party and the market plays out differently in those three sectors. China has been able to uh, innovate very effectively and now has more high-speed rail than any other country and is exporting its high-speed rail technology to many other countries, uh, not least through the Belt One Belt One Road initiative uh, that is a massive infrastructure program. So here the party and the market align very well. When we move to the semiconductor industry, it's a different picture. High-speed rail is kind of a government-to-government -government business. Semiconductors is much more of a B2B or business-to-business -business situation where hundreds of companies are building products and selling to thousands and even tens of thousands of customers. And here, the state-owned enterprises are laggards in the technology. And all the innovation in the Chinese semiconductor market is coming from privately owned companies started by entrepreneurs and also by foreign companies trying to open up the Chinese market and investing there. So the tension between the party and the market here is much more pronounced. And the fear is that the China will misallocate resources and give too much to the state-owned companies and starve the, the very innovative privately owned companies. And when we get to automotive, the, prop, the pattern is actually even more pronounced because automotive is a B to C market where the decision of millions of consumers are what are driving the market. And so here there's a huge tension between the party and the market. Uh, the leading sources of innovation in the automotive market in China are all either the startups uh, from China or the foreign companies doing business through joint ventures in China. And the state-owned enterprises, again, are laggards. And the proof of this is that the exports in both semiconductors and in automotive uh, are coming almost exclusively from either the privately owned companies or from the foreign multinationals operating there. So this is, I think, what's ahead for China is they have to make some choices uh, about how much support to give to the state-owned companies versus the privately owned and foreign companies. And uh, I'm hopeful that they will 
uh, lean toward the market side of this. Uh, but if they lean too hard on the party side, then I fear that they're going to create distortions and misallocations uh, and get less innovation as a result. After 10 years in open innovation, probably there are many things that you thought that would happen that have already happened, both in companies and in governments, and things that were unexpected and things that didn't happen yet, things that you are hoping that one day will happen. Do you have any of these things that you would like to happen at the level of companies and also at the level of governments? Well, you're right that uh, a lot of time has passed with open innovation and there have been some great delightful surprises and there have also been some gaps or some disappointments. Uh, on the positive side, when I did a search on LinkedIn last week, I found more than 58,000 people uh, who have open innovation as part of their job on LinkedIn. And I found 6,000 job openings worldwide on LinkedIn related to open innovation. So uh, there's a lot of work out there going on with open innovation, and there's a lot of new jobs available too. So this is simply delightful. Uh, but with uh, some things I thought that were going to happen or the gaps that really haven't happened, at the organizational level, uh, I mentioned in passing, uh, a lot of open innovation is not simply accessing and utilizing the external environment. You really do have to change the way you operate internally as well. And this is a much more difficult transition than I anticipated. And it's been a challenge for companies doing it, that if you simply put open innovation on at the beginning of your innovation process and you don't change the rest of the process, you're not going to get good results. You really need new processes to get the most value out of open innovation. And this is true now at the governmental level as well. Uh, governments think about innovation policy in terms of giving subsidies to R&D, for example, particularly to large companies. And in open innovation, we want to think about a much bigger playing field, and we want to enable the rapid flow of knowledge across organizations throughout the society, more of the dissemination and more of the absorption. So I would like to see government policy pay equal attention to dissemination and absorption, whether it's through open data, open access policies, or more support for training, maybe uh, some uh, onboarding for new people to get the first three or six months of their salaries uh, subsidized by the government to help spur hiring younger people. Um, training uh, not only at the university level, but also for vocational skills, uh, for technicians and uh, field service workers and the like, uh, giving more support for, in the U.S., it would be community colleges. I'm not sure what it would be in Spain, where people who aren't academic uh, college graduates are still have the skills and knowledge to contribute and perform at a high level, and this would all help the bent to spread the benefit of innovation across more of the society. Henry, is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't? Or anything that you want to say uh, to close the, the podcast? Or anything that you find interesting? Yes, I actually uh, reference uh, at some length some of the excellent research that was done at ASADE 
uh, by Esteve Almarai <laughs> and Jonathan Wareham and their colleagues around smart cities. And I discussed how we had sort of an early generation of smart cities that was very much focused on creating uh, apps and uh, new technologies and that these did not lead to very positive results. Uh, but now in the second generation, we're starting to see uh, more context and more contribution and more results from this. And I pivot from that to go into rural India into a program called Smart Villages. And this, the idea of using connectivity, uh, again, connects the smart cities and the smart villages. But in the smart villages, the program is to try to get businesses to make small investments in essentially uh, business development research to see what villagers want and are able and willing to pay for if they can be brought into the Internet economy. Uh, and it started in one village in Andhra Pradesh. It's operating now in more than 500 villages in three Indian states. Uh, so it's still too early to declare victory, but it is, it's not too early to declare it an exciting experiment that shows that open innovation and that kind of thinking can create results uh, even in uh, rural villages. You are so kind. Uh, thank you very much, Henry. To our listeners, just to remind them, the name of the book is Open Innovation Results. Thank you so much. Thank you, Esteve. If you still want to learn more, remember, you can register on our platform, dobetter.asade.edu. That was all for today. Until next time, thank you. <laughs>